0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: hello believers non-believers and everyone in between you're listening to stories with sapphire i am sapphire sandalo now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time Welcome to the first season of my new show, where I'll be sharing the supernatural experiences that shape our world. If after the show you feel compelled to share a story or need paranormal advice, send an email to storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. This is an independently run podcast. If you like what you hear and would like to support the show, consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash storieswithsapphire to see the different tiers and perks, such as a tarot reading from me. Chapter 1. We Are All Possessed When I was about 10 years old, I remember sitting with my family and the movie The Exorcist somehow came up. I cannot remember why or how, but my mom then said, Do you know why The Exorcist is considered one of the scariest movies of all time? Because it's real. This was my introduction to the concept of demonic possession. In Catholicism, it is believed that the devil is always trying to convince people to turn away from God and follow him instead. You can protect yourself from the devil's temptations through prayer and faith. But if you are not devout, you become prone to the devil's influence and your body becomes susceptible to possession. When this happens, one of the devil's minions, it's rarely the devil himself, can take over your body and then your soul. I was horrified and fascinated. I had to know more. So we went to Blockbuster, rented The Exorcist, and watched it as a family. As we watched, my mom relayed behind-the-scenes information. Did you know that a lot of the people who worked on the film died shortly after? Did you know that they flashed images from the Holocaust in between scenes to subliminally scare the audience? I've actually been trying to fact check that last one but can't find any proof. After the movie, my mom explained that because Regan played with the Ouija board and because her mother was not a woman of faith, Regan became a victim of possession. And that's why I should never play with the Ouija board or curse the Lord's name. Please nobody tell her about the Ouija board that I own. This was such a crucial moment in my life. It basically solidified my belief in the spiritual world. I was convinced that possession was real and could cause the human body to perform impossible things. I mean, if my mom says demons are real, they must be. Recently, I asked my mom if she remembers any of this, and I made a disappointing discovery. Um, So speaking of scary movies, uh, you mentioned The Exorcist. When did you see The Exorcist? Like, how old were you? I never watched it. What? You said you did! Never watched it. That's how scared I am. You never okay. watched it. I have I, never watched it. Wait, you, I watched, never, it, I you. watched it never watched it. This seriously blew my mind. It, I, I we do argued do for like it. ten minutes about this. No, I, I know that she, know she watched it, it with us. No, I think I she just blocked it from her memory I mean, because she's grand, that afraid yes, of the, the movie. Ask your dad. I've never, never watched exercise. You're remembering things wrong. <laughs> I don't know if that's a Catholic thing or a Filipino thing, but I've been told many times that the more you talk about occult topics or demons or the paranormal, the more you draw its attention to you. Well, that never stopped me from diving into this shit, clearly. So, in 2017, when I learned of a documentary called The Devil and Father Amort, I dropped everything I was doing to watch it. The film was by William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist. He documented his trip to Italy, where he was invited to witness the exorcism of a woman named Christina. This was my chance to see a real exorcism. But halfway through the movie, I was actually kind of bored. I don't even think I finished it. So during the actual exorcism, Christina is sitting on a chair in a room filled with people, all reciting prayers along with Father Amort, who is pressing his hand on Christina's head. And every so often, Christina would try to jump out of the chair, her attempts accompanied by angry groans. The men sitting near her would restrain her. And it goes on like this for about 15 minutes. And I just remember watching this and thinking, Is this really it? It seems so... Tame. My understanding of possession up until that point had been formed solely by movies. Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Conjuring, The Evil Dead. In these films, the victim physically changes. The exorcism is usually done with the least amount of people in the room, so the demon doesn't move to another person. This was completely different from what I was seeing in this documentary. It didn't even look like anyone in the room was scared to be there. It was all pretty chill. And because I was expecting this huge, elaborate, violent spectacle, I was underwhelmed. So then I thought, well, maybe this is what possession looks like when you strip away all of the drama that movies add. Possession isn't horrifying because evil takes over you. It's horrifying because it's a reminder of how little control we have over our soul to begin with. The concept of possession implies that we have ownership of our souls, but do we? Did any of you choose to be born? Did any of you choose which body you would occupy? I think that we are all possessed by something. I am possessed by the fear of failure. By constantly thinking I'm dying. By anxiety. I didn't choose these feelings, but they are within me. They are somehow simultaneously not me at all and yet still so much of me. And the way I've chosen to deal with these demons is by paying a woman to listen to me talk about them every week. So maybe the devil is actually much more subtle. He doesn't need to throw your body around on a bed or make your eyes turn yellow. He slowly seeps his way into your life, chipping away at you, negative thought by negative thought, until he wears you down. And I don't know about you, but I think that is much more horrifying. Chapter 2. My Demon Anxiety. Am I dying? I should take that thing. It always makes me feel better. No, remember that article. It said it could kill you. What the fuck was that, Twitch? Okay, it's either absolutely nothing or cancer. This is all just in my head. I'm making it worse by worrying. What if it's not all just in my head and then I ignore it and it gets worse? I'm scared that if I go, they'll tell me something I don't want to hear or I'll be embarrassed that I'm overreacting. What do doctors even know? They just push pills. Am I dying? Okay, I fucking meditated. Why the fuck am I still freaking out? This is all just in my head. It will pass. Oh god, please pass. I'm home all alone. What if something happens and no one can help me? Maybe 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 I'm just not drinking enough water. Oh my god, a woman died from drinking too much water? You don't understand. See, if I don't have control over my health, then what the hell do I have control over? Maybe I am dying. Because this... This is definitely not living. Chapter 3. The Case of Clarita Villanueva. The following is the first documented case of demonic possession in Asia. In 1953, a 17-year-old girl was arrested in Manila in the Philippines. Her name was Clarita Villanueva. Two days after being incarcerated, she began exhibiting strange behavior. The guards came over to see what was going on, and they found Clarita writhing around and screaming in pain on her cot. She was covered in what looked like giant bite marks, but not made by human teeth. There's a very big dark man with curly hair all over his body, Clarita claimed. And there's another body with an angelic face and a big mustache. A few days later, the mayor of Manila at the time, Arsenio Laxon, called for the guards to bring Clarita to his office so she could be examined by the chief medical examiner, Mariano Lara. When she arrived, Clarita began screaming and claiming she was being attacked again. They're taking turns biting me, she said between shrieks. Laxon and Lara held Clarita down as she was being attacked by these invisible entities, he wasn't sure what to make of this young girl's outbursts. Was she faking these fits to detract from her crime? But then, before his eyes, bite marks appeared on Clarita's body, on her neck, and on her index finger, which Loxone's hand had been covering. Lara, a rational and headstrong man of science, was completely shaken by what was going on. After everything had calmed down, they asked Clarita to draw what her attackers looked like, but when they handed her a pencil, it flew out of her hand. What it is, is beyond me, Luxon said. This is something that goes way back to the dark, dim past. The topic of demonic possession is controversial because more often than not, those deemed to be possessed are actually suffering from undiagnosed mental illness. And to properly assess Clarita's case, we need to know what her life was like leading up to these events. But in my research, I found conflicting information. One source says she was a dancer and was arrested that night for vagrancy. Another says she was found on the street by a policeman as she was having a seizure. And another source claims she was an orphaned prostitute daughter of a con artist who was arrested when she came on to a plain-clothes officer. Can you guess which of these sources was from a minister? Without knowing who Clarita was before the supposed possession makes it incredibly difficult to assess what was really going on. But nonetheless... Many still regard this as one of the most legitimate cases of possession. So, what do you think happened to Clarita Villanueva? Chapter 4. Don't be scared. It's just your Lola.
0: My family has always been very comfortable uh, mixing these indigenous practices with our Catholic beliefs. This is
1: Girly. Her family has a fascinating and very entertaining relationship with the spirit world, and while they identify as Catholic, they've integrated indigenous Filipino traditions into their practice.
0: We always had a altar, an altar in the middle of our house, um, and on that altar, you of course would see a Santo Nino, but we would also always have plates of food and drinks from different dishes we would make during family parties as a way to basically as offerings to our ancestors.
1: Today, the Philippines is over 86% Catholic. But before the Spanish colonizers introduced Christianity in 1565, the indigenous Filipinos mostly practiced onitism. They believed that there is a parallel spirit world that is invisible to but still had influence on our physical world. And our ancestors, who have left this world before us, exist in this world. So to honor their memories, indigenous Filipinos would make food offerings. And even though the colonizers were successful in converting a majority of the Philippines into devout Catholics, many Filipinos kept their indigenous traditions alive by integrating it into their Catholic belief system. That way, it was more likely to go by undetected by the Spanish. Centuries of keeping these traditions shrouded in mystery might have contributed to why Gurley's family may not necessarily know the origins and details of what they practice.
0: One example is uh, I went to the Philippines recently this year, uh, or I'm sorry, last year. It's 2020 now. So um, I went to the Philippines in 2019. Uh, I was able to go back home to the little village that I was born in. And I remember asking my Lola, uh, you know, about all these different plants uh, that she's always had in front of her home. And what they did, uh, so I was standing in the yard, in the front yard with her, and I pointed at the, at a tree, and I asked her, like, "What is that? What a, what does that tree do?" Like, because uh, I've seen her use leaves from this tree before. She didn't know the name, but she she could tell me that the leaves could be used to cure um, upset stomach or if you were feeling lightheaded. Um, And I I continued to point at different herbs and plants in in her yard. And she continued to tell me, (laughs) like, not really much about them other than the fact like, oh, you know, they make you feel better.
1: Gurley grew up in an environment that normalized the connection between our physical world and the spirit world.
0: Whenever spirits would actually be in our home, like, like there would at least be one or two people who would either smell a strong scent of jasmine or um, would like feel a cold sensation. And that because it happens so frequently— um, there would be times where someone would feel a sensation and we would just kind of pull out a chair next to us and say, like, have a seat or, you know, welcome, welcome to the house.
1: <laughs> the first time Gurley truly realized her family's strong connection with the spirit world was when she was 10 years old. She visited the Philippines for the death anniversary of her paternal Lola, Cresencia.
0: I was outside of my dad's house and all of a sudden I hear this humongous commotion um, starting in the kitchen and then people heading into the living room. So then I go into the living room and I'm I'm sitting on the stairs kind of looking down at the entire space and I see um, several people holding my one of my aunt's body like she she was just kind of lying down in their arms and they laid her down on the floor and then they put this black cloth over her face they put they also put keys in her hands and then my dad crouched down next to her face and he said mom mom what do you want and I'm thinking like um that's not your mom <laughs> like what is happening and everybody like all the adults knew exactly what was going on i'm looking at this scene with my aunt lying down uh in the living room with the black cloth on her face and the keys in her hands and my dad talking to her as if she were his mom and then she started to speak
1: girlie's dad continued to converse with her aunt on the floor The voice that came out of her was very low. So low that Gurley's dad had to put his ear up to her mouth to hear. You know, she
0: was talking about somebody needed to go find something in one of her cabinets. And then one by one, Gurley's
1: dad continued to call over different people to come speak to her Lola through the body of her hand
0: clearly she had a lot of things to say and then my dad would say like so-and-so is here and -and so-and-so is here and then he got to my mom and he's like you know toning my mom uh, she's here too you want to talk to her like it was like people were talking to her as if she was on the telephone and so my mom took her turn and start you know was talking to my dad's mom and all of a sudden I hear her say girlie is here too The minute I heard my mom say my name, I ran straight out of the house. I was so afraid. You know, I had no idea what was happening. I'm standing outside of the house, like shaking and crying because I was so afraid. And then one of my great aunts came outside to comfort me. And she was saying, like, you shouldn't be scared. It's just your Lola. It's okay. This is what happens. So that whole scene, that that whole situation got etched into my brain and I was very much introduced to my family's relationship to the spirit world.
1: After the initial shock of what happened passed, Gurley asked her dad to explain what was going on.
0: So uh, my aunt, she was actually washing dishes. She was at the sink um, and there were you know tons of people around her doing different things. And all of a sudden her body just got really stiff. And then she just kind of fell over like, you know, when you yell timber, when a tree is falling, like she fell over like a tree, like her entire body was just completely stiff. And then the folks who actually carried her from the kitchen to the living room, they said it felt like they were carrying more than one person. Like she was heavier than than she should have been.
1: This ability to become a channel for ancestors was also present in Gurley's maternal grandmother, Rafina, who lived with Gurley at the time. And every so often, relatives would speak through her. Gurley asked her what it felt like when she was in this state. She
0: says it, it just feels like she's in this deep sleep. Like she doesn't remember anything, but when she wakes up, she is... Like sweating and super exhausted. So, there was actually one occasion when I went to visit my parents. I was walking around the house and I stepped onto a bunch of rice it was all in front of my grandmother's bedroom door like why is there rice on the floor and my my mom said my grandmother got tired of all these spirits coming to her wanting to talk so she just like put rice in front of the door so they wouldn't bother her the belief is that rice confuses spirits because they want to try to like Count all the rice kernels (laughs) or the rice grains. So, you know, if you ever have spirits that you don't want bothering you, spread some rice around your house.
1: (laughs) I absolutely love Gurley's playful attitude toward the paranormal. Her stories show us that the idea of bodily possession and interacting with the deceased isn't always a terrifying experience. These spirits are still our family, they're just communicating with us in a new way. In fact, Gurley's relatives are still kind of playful, even in the afterlife. See, when Gurley came back from the Philippines and told her cousins in the U.S. what happened, no one believed her. But even then, this story had become part of their family lore. So when Gurley was in high school, she, her cousins, and some friends were having a sleepover. They were all gathered on the pull-out couch in the living room. Girlie and her cousin Juzin were on the bed while three others were on the floor.
0: And they're like, tell that story again. What happened? So
1: Girlie told the story again. The only lights on in the house were the ones in the room they were in.
0: So we're telling these stories and all of a sudden the light turns on in the kitchen and my cousin Juzin's face goes completely white. And Juzin was like, Um, I think I just saw a figure jump from the kitchen to the dining room. (laughs) Everybody started screaming. And then my aunt and uncle come running out of their bedroom and are like, what the hell is going on? So we were all freaked out. And I was like, throw some rice on the ground. (laughs) And we were so freaked out my aunt and uncle decided to pull out a mattress and sleep in the kitchen and then a couple of days later i think it was i think it might have been before new year's eve my grandmother Cresencia comes and visits us and she's talking through my lola uh, rufina and she was she started laughing at some point i'm like what's the deal and she's like you you kids are so silly we're the ones who turned on the light I said we <laughs> who's the other person so it was her and one of my cousins uncles, like great uncles. So they had come and visited us during Christmas. um, And they happened to be there while we were telling these stories. And they decided to play a trick on us. I mean, so that was just kind of indicative on how mischievous my family spirits are. Um, So I expect nothing less from them at this point. But that freaked all of us out. I'm like, well, Now you believe me. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't force someone to believe that there is a world beyond the living. It's something that each of us have to kind of come to on our own because part of it really involves our own examination of, of our beliefs and how energy exists in the world. When I started to understand that piece, like we're all just kind of made up of different particles, and when we pass, those particles just change. It's kind of like your spiritual practice or, or religion. Like, if you believe in that, then cool. If you don't, that's fine too. Because if you're really meant to communicate with your ancestors, it will happen.
1: And Girly's ancestors have definitely made their presence known to her years after the incident at the death anniversary, Girlie is not the same ten year old afraid to speak to her deceased grandmother through a channel.
0: I mean, because these um these apparitions, these spirits, these uh possessions have happened so frequently in my uh in my lifetime, I've gotten I you know, I've gotten more brave as they've happened, uh, in in that like, you know, now I kind of like Whatever it is my uh my paternal grandmother, um, uh, I've gotten to, you know, I've gotten into the habit of asking her like joking questions. <laughs> like, how do you travel? Like, how do you go from place to place? And she talked about having like needing money, which was really interesting because I didn't think that you know, the spirit world wouldn't need any sort of currency. And then she's also talked about being in a really big house with a lot of rooms and playing cards and mahjong with like, with family members who passed away before her. So that's what I always think, like, the afterlife is going to look like a really big house with a bunch of rooms. And hopefully you're hanging out with you know, family members, chosen or blood, and it's just going to be like one really happy occasion. And then on occasion, like you know, you watch TV and you're seeing the living do some like stupid shit, and then <laughs> you decide like, all right, I need to go, I need to go down there and take care of some stuff, and then talk through one of your relatives or friends or whatever, say your piece, and then go back to the afterlife. <laughs> I I think that I'm more comfortable. With all of this, you know, I do believe that I did at some point have the ability to be more um, connected and and to feel more of of these things that other folks have have experienced in my family. So I'm just kind of like, okay, ancestors, you got some messages for me. <laughs> Bring them down. <laughs> Let's chit chat. I mean, I carry that with me, and I hope to you know continue to talk about these stories with nieces and nephews so that they know that this is part of you know this is part of who they are
1: Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer. And podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every week. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel, and also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me, so do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. Chapter 5. The Visitation. I'd like to close this episode with a true story from Andrew Tate, the host of the Let's Not Meet podcast, where he shares real tales of horror.
2: My story begins on January 3rd of 1991. It was my fourth birthday. It was the earliest birthday that I can recall very clearly. I remember my parents got me a VHS that contained two episodes of the TV show DuckTales and a Ninja Turtle action figure. We had pizza, which I choked on due to the excitement of everything, and a cupcake made especially for me with the number four candle on it. I don't remember what I wished for when I blew it out, but I could imagine it was probably for a brother or sister or anyone at all to play with for that matter. I'm an only child but that wasn't my parents' fault. My toys, the Disney afternoon, and the occasional visit with a cousin was all the interaction I really had up until kindergarten. To say I was a sheltered kid is a gross understatement. Because I spent so much time alone, I lived in my head. Ever since I can remember, I've had a constant inner monologue, which has resulted in some unfortunate challenges later on in life, with anxiety and stress. I could never get that voice to shut up. I was never a relaxed person. I just couldn't turn it off. It's because of this that I believe I had extremely vivid dreams. The night of my fourth birthday was the first night of many, where these nightmares would reach into my waking life. I woke up in the dead of night to find that I couldn't move my body. I could only open my eyes. I knew that I was awake, though but my body didn't. The sheer terror that I felt during that first episode was devastating. Soaked in sweat, I felt the presence of a figure with me there in my room. I couldn't see it, but I could sense it was just beyond my peripheral vision. I wanted so badly to turn my head to the left, away from the thing, but I couldn't move an inch. The figure slowly crept forward, and into my view from where I lay. A tall, dark, and featureless being stood at the foot of my bed. It was nothing more than a crude silhouette that emitted pure hatred. The figure leaned forward and towered over me. I felt a heavy force fall into my chest, as if it were squeezing the life from me. I don't know how long this torture lasted for, I must have blacked out, because the next thing I remember, I woke up and I was staring at the corner of my room where the ceiling met the walls. But it was too close. It didn't look right. It's hard to describe, but it felt as if I were somehow zoomed in on that corner of my room with my vision. I looked a foot to the left at the air conditioning vent that was on the ceiling. Then my vision it, it returned to normal, but only to zoom back in, this time towards the vent. It was like my consciousness was bouncing in and out of my body like a yo-yo. I couldn't control it. Still, in some kind of state of paralysis, I focused on the sensation until it eventually faded and I was able to return to normal and back into my body. I began to move my head, followed by my arms, then hips, legs, and so on until it was all over. I was alone and fully in control of my body and mind. The moment my four-year-old brain made this realization, I burst into tears and quickly ran to my parents' bedroom, where I was told that it was all just a dream. I believed them, and I slept with my parents the rest of that night. I actually slept with them quite a lot as a child. We moved at least six or seven times when I was young, maybe more, and no matter what place we happened to be living in at the time, if I dared to sleep alone in my room, what my parents convinced me was a nightmare would return. It was always very similar, but there were variations. The dark man would be substituted by a smiling man outside my window. An impossibly wide, Toothy smile and oversized eyes. The yo yo sensation with my vision would sometimes get stuck in the zoomed in position where I felt like I couldn't even get back into my body. My first trip to church camp was extremely stressful because I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep with my parents. I was probably seven or eight at the time, and far too old already to be doing that. Sure enough, The very first night away from home, I was frozen and awake as the figure made its way through the cabin to once again drain any ounce of happiness and sense of pride from me for thinking I could be on my own for a single night. A punishment for my bravery, I thought. When it ended, probably around 2 a.m., and I was finally able to move, I realized that my underwear were filled with feces. It was the first and only accident I ever had like that. To avoid any more trauma from the teasing that I would only be guaranteed at this point, I snuck out of the cabin and into the woods to dispose of the soiled undergarments where no one would find them. I then cleaned up in the bathrooms and returned to bed. They did find them, though, and I joined in on the laughter with everyone else so as not to raise any suspicion that it was my underwear that they were all laughing at. I hated church camp but I went back the next year and I made it through all five nights without any incident. In fact, that first year at church camp would be my last encounter with the dark figure for some time. During my early teens, a cousin of mine told me of a time when he woke up in the middle of the night and saw something moving across the floor at the foot of his bed. He described it as a shadow of a person on all fours crawling around the room my childhood shame was lifted just a bit as he admitted to me that he went to sleep with his parents in their bed when it finally left his room another time my cousin and i we overheard a conversation between our mothers about a story told to them by the mother of another kid that went to my cousin's church what we gathered from their talk was that he saw a black figure in their house with a red face. The figure spoke to him and told him that his recently deceased grandmother was happy. I have to admit, my brain manufactured an image of this event that I truly wish I could erase. I was fortunate that this new information didn't trigger any episodes with my shadowy intruder, though I did have trouble getting to sleep. One week later, things became all too clear to me, when we purchased our first family computer. After setting up my AOL sign-in and clicking around wildly on anything and everything that I saw, it dawned on me that I now had the power to seek out and learn anything I wanted to. I didn't sleep at all that first night. I researched my experiences until dawn and finally came to the conclusion that what I and my cousin had experienced was a phenomenon called sleep paralysis which is often coupled with an unfortunate added layer of terror called hypnagogic hallucinations. Some refer to them as shadow people. From what I gathered, these people were often described in different religions and to different spiritual believers as supernatural entities from some kind of underworld. I found countless terrifying stories from first-person encounters with these things. All of the encounters were almost identical, save for a few oddities. For instance, some stories describe the dark figure as having a powerful male presence, sometimes wearing a top hat. They would refer to it as the Hat Man. Some would claim that the being would flicker in and out of their peripheral vision only to jump onto their chest and try to strangle them. Heidi Hollis, the author of the book The Hat Man: The True Story of Evil Encounters, believes that these are negative alien beings that can be repelled by various means such as invoking the name of Jesus Christ. While the science of these shadow people was and still is to this day limited, I couldn't accept the explanation that these were simply psychological conditions or hallucinations. Why would so many people all over the world have identical experiences? I was able to put the whole ordeal out of my mind and became preoccupied with hobbies, music, and teenage angst. However, while driving home one night in 2005, a bright light slowly descended from the sky I first thought that it might be a helicopter with its spotlight on searching for some fleeing criminal. The problem was, there was no sound coming from its direction. I had my windows down because it was a hot night. Still, as the light grew larger and came closer to my car, I couldn't hear anything but the hum of my own engine. As it drew closer to me, maybe 50 feet above at this point, I felt as if I might be in some kind of danger, so I pulled over to the side of the road. I got out of my car and stared up at the thing. It hovered no more than 40 to 50 feet above me. I did finally hear a sound. It was a car coming down the road in my direction, and it pulled over behind me. An Indian man with a white beard exited the car and joined me in silence. I believe he was as confused as I was, and possibly as nervous as well. I spoke to the man, but unfortunately he didn't speak English. We both just stood there for no more than a matter of seconds before the giant light withdrew back into the sky quickly until it completely disappeared into the mess of stars above us. The Indian man and I exchanged exaggerated shrugs with identical looks of confusion and surprise. I tried to talk to him about it, but he wasn't able to make out anything I was saying to him. I didn't own a camera, and this was during the era of Nokia brick phones, but it didn't matter. Even if I did have a camera with me, I was so struck by this bright light. I was so affected by it that I could barely take my eyes off of it, much less try and find than operate a camera. Now before I present to you the conclusion of my story, I want you to know that I still don't feel confident that the light that I saw that night had anything to do with my experiences, but later that same night, the shadow person returned to my room. Eighteen years old, it had been years since my last nightmarish encounter with these things. I thought it was over. I had forgotten them at this point, but there it was, in the corner of my bedroom, making its way towards my bed until it towered over me again, strangling me, devouring me. Frozen and helpless, I lay there with tears swelling up in my eyes until I blacked out again. The next morning I told myself it was a nightmare. It was probably due to stress from my new job. I tried to put it out of my mind and return to my normal routine. I got ready for work, ate breakfast, and rushed out to my car. As I reversed out of the driveway, I looked up at my house, and there on the side of the house next to my window on the second floor was a black handprint, the fingers facing towards the glass, almost as if someone were using it to lean up against the side of the house to peer into my window or find a way into my room. I turned off my car, ran back into the house, and up into my room. I opened the window and looked out to get a better view. My mind wasn't playing tricks on me. In the clear morning light, I was staring at a black handprint inches away from my window. I reached out and brushed my finger across the print. It flaked off with ease, and it kind of stained my fingers like ash from a cigarette mite. I immediately felt sick to my stomach when my mind darted back to my experience the night before. Was I being visited, or rather, revisited by something malicious or evil? Something that also plagued others from all over the world? This ashy handprint was not an hallucination. This was physical evidence... these beings are real and they haven't forgotten about me i haven't seen them again since that night but even now well into my 30s i can't help but think and feel i'm sometimes being watched and that they'll be back to make sure that i haven't forgotten about whatever they are
1: make sure you check out his show where i guest read a few stories on his most recent episode Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, subscribe and leave a rating and review and visit patreon.com slash storieswithsapphire. What are your thoughts on demonic possession? Let me know at storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sindalo. The visitation was written and narrated by Andrew Tate. All other stories and music written by Sapphire Sindalo. Special thanks to my guest, Gurli Cuyato. For more information on this episode, visit storieswithsapphire.com.